Just a reminder that the foundation that Peter's been laying so far in the beginning of this letter, again, a letter written to various churches spread throughout uh, a region called Asia Minor. We know that as modern-day Turkey, that area. He's writing to churches that are uh, these are new churches, of course. Uh, so a lot of young believers in these churches. Uh, there were a mixture of people in the churches. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, but primarily Gentile audiences. So again, these are folks who were Greek culturally and uh, Roman politically and uh, very much uh, kind of a pluralistic, pagan-oriented society who had come to Christ. They're now learning. What does it look like? What does it mean to live for Christ in the midst of a, of a world around us that is not Christian, right? And a very, very much opposed to uh, the gospel, opposed to a Christian worldview. Christianity was a threat to Rome and Greek culture because Rome believed that Caesar was God, right? And the Greek culture believed in a plurality of gods. And here comes Christianity says, no, there's one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ. So to live for Christ was to abandon Everything that society around you believed in deeply. And as a result, the Christians were beginning to experience marginalization, opposition, and persecution. And it was about to get worse as time would go on. So Peter's writing to them, and he's, he's laid this foundation of who they are in Christ, right? He's trying to encourage them as they're living this life that they are God's elect, that they are, they are chosen by God, that they are his people, that he is for them. And that, be, and that through the gospel, God has, has shown mercy to them and promised them eternal blessing. He's promised to them uh, all of the inheritance that comes in Christ. They have everything they need, in other words. But he also says, you have to be prepared for and expect that in this life, as we await the fullness of our future salvation, you're going to experience trials. You're going to experience suffering. That's a result of following Jesus in a world that is opposed to him. So he's laid that foundation for them, and now he's going to begin to help them see how to apply this holy life that they've been called to into their specific spheres of influence, their specific relationships. And today, we're going to see how he talks to us about how we actually relate to one another in the church, and specifically, uh, how do we love one another instead of being at odds with one another? How do we actually deal with conflict-type situations in the church? So I've titled the sermon message this morning, Loving One Another with a Pure Heart, which is a direct quote of what he tells us in this passage. And uh, before we look at it, let me, let me, let's just talk about this reality. Let's set the scene for what we're about to read. One of the painful facts of life is that the people of God don't always get along with one another, do they? That is a painful truth, and it is a truth. We don't always get along with each other, which is painful because you would think that those who walk in hope, which we've been, we've been learning so much about, we have a living hope. We are walking in hope, and, and, and as a result, to, to, to live in and to walk in hope is to live in and walk in holiness. You would think that those who walk in hope and holiness would also be able to walk in harmony with one another. But again, that's not always true. See, God's perspective on the church is this. There is one body. We are one people. We are united together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But what we actually see so often in the church and with our own human eyes is a church divided. And sometimes even in significant conflict with one another. So again, Peter's, Peter's going to talk about that with them, but he's, he's given them this message so far. You're the people of God because of his grace, because of his mercy. You've been called to holiness. And holiness, he's going to show us here, demands purity in our relationships within the church. So if you want to evaluate your own life and say, how do I know if I'm being sanctified. How do I know if I'm growing in holiness? One of the marks of holiness is purity in your relationships with other people, specifically within the church. A changed life should be evidenced by a changed relationship with God's other children. So Peter calls us here to a pure love. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. And I'm going to struggle today because my glasses are in the shop. So I've got to do this in a way where I can actually read it. Having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Loving one another with a pure heart. Let me give you the first point that he's making here, and it's pretty obvious at this point. It's that we must love other Christians with purity, not hypocrisy. We must love other Christians with purity, not hypocrisy. Again, back in verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter uses two different Greek words here in verse 22 for love. The first is phileo, which is a brotherly love. And the second Greek word is agape, which is a heavenly love. You've probably heard that there are four or five different words in the Greek language for love that we translate as love in English. They have different emphases and different meanings. So two of them here, the brotherly love phileo and this heavenly love agape. Agape, I say it's heavenly love because this is the kind of self-giving, selfless love that God demonstrates towards you and me. Agape is known to be the strongest uh, manifestation of love. So he uses both. And by using both words, I think what he's doing is he's communicating that the two must go together. A brotherly love that is coupled with this strong, selfless, godlike love. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we've been shown God's love. We've been shown a heavenly love. 
Another way to say that is we can love them in a heavenly way while loving them in a brotherly way because that's what we've received from God and that's what he's purified us to do. Right? He says you've been born again for this. They go hand in hand. What helps us to understand how this pure-hearted love is demonstrated are the two qualifiers that he places next to these words for love in the text. The first one is the word sincere, right? Sincere. And that is coupled with the phileo, the brotherly love. The word sincere is the antonym translation of the Greek word from which we get our English word hypocrite. In other words, to be sincere is to be not hypocritical, what does that mean? We all have a, an idea of, of what a hypocrite is, but in the ancient Greek world, a hypocrite was, uh, was described, the word hypocrite used to describe an actor who was on the stage playing the part of somebody else, right, playing a role from behind a mask. That's what, that would have, that's what the word would have meant to them. They would be thinking about this theater reference, right? I'm, I'm playing a role. I'm acting like somebody I'm not. I'm wearing a mask. And Peter uses this word, because some Christians do that in the way that we relate to one another. Perhaps that was happening here in these early churches as well. They were putting on masks of sort of this pretended love over their real attitude when they were associating with other Christians. Have you ever felt that temptation? Or maybe, maybe you've picked that up from somebody else, right? I'm always very aware of that, by the way, when I come in here on a Sunday morning and, you know, I say hello to people and, and you're, we're all saying hello to one another. There's a, there's a sense in which sometimes we're, our, our little antennas are up for, like, the cheese, right? Hey, how's it going, right? And we put that on ourselves because we just walked in and we don't feel like that right? We don't feel very loving. We're not really ready for that. We're tired. We're groggy. Maybe we've had a long week, but we're like, hey, right? So, so that's hypocritical, right? So he's saying that's not a sincere love. It's sort of fake. And he's qualifying here. Like we're, we've been purified to something beyond that, something deeper than that, something stronger than that. Now, why do we do that? And why was maybe Peter pointing this out to them? What were the conditions that might have been responsible for their hypocrisy. Well, again, remember the context. These are people, they're, they're fairly new to the faith, and they're, they're, they're under pressure. They're feeling the strain of living for Christ in a, in a non-Christian world. They're getting pushed back by the world. They're feeling marginalization from the broader society. And so what are you going to be tempted to do when you're under pressure like that? You might be under pressure to go back to your old friends, to go back to your old associates, to sort of like say, you know what, I know this is my new family in Christ, but this family brings uh, difficulty in my life. If I can just kind of settle back in with my worldly friends, maybe some of that pressure will go away. And so if I do that, and maybe some of you have experienced that as well, like there's a temptation to sort of pull back. We talked about that last week. Don't go back, right? Don't go back to Egypt, but we do. And when we do, do we find that sometimes our desires for being with our brothers and sister in Christ begin to diminish as our affections go back to and get reattached to our relationships in the world? I think that's a common thing, and that's probably what was happening here. And when that happens to us, when our associations start to drop back to the world, we can then come to church 
and maybe start to feel like we're out of place. Right? Like we don't really fit in here anymore. And so we may be uh, pressed to then pretend to love and care for other Christians, but really would rather be somewhere else. Would really rather be with other people. That happens today too, right? It happens a lot, frankly, and it typically looks like this. Person A might come up to somebody, I haven't seen you in a while, you know, hey, welcome back, it's, it's good, where have you been? And ask the question, why don't you seem to want to get more involved in the church? You know, we don't see you plugging in, I don't see you diving into relations. Why, why don't you seem to want to get involved? And, and then person B might say something like, I don't know, I just don't really know a lot of people here. Most of my friends don't really go here. You know, how often do we hear stuff like that? And while that can be legitimate, there may be brief instances of that being true. If you're new, for example, sure, perhaps not a lot of your friends are here at this point. But typically what we mean when we say something like that, I'm just, I don't really, I don't really know a lot of people here. What we really mean is this, I don't really know many people here because frankly, I don't try very hard to. I don't try very hard. I've not really gained an interest in pursuing friendships that might interfere with my more highly prized worldly relationships. In fact, it might even embarrass me a little bit if my worldly relationships knew that I was hanging out with you people, (laughs) right? And I don't want you and I don't want anyone else to know the truth about me, so I'll just hang out here and sort of hide behind my little church mask and hope nobody actually presses too deeply into getting to know me. That happens when our affections for the world begin to creep back in, right? When our, 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 our love here becomes hypocritical because our love elsewhere is more sincere. And that's, when that's an attitude that, that any of us adopt, it, it usually means that our lives within the congregation, our lives within the church are going to be sh- pretty short-lived because it's a dangerous thing to go back. It's a dangerous thing to go back. And again, I'm not talking about not having relationships outside the church. I'm talking about where our brotherly and sisterly affections lie. It's dangerous to go back. It's either a demonstration of the flesh, right? My salvation may become in question as, as, as maybe, you know, it's, it's an evidence that the word is being choked out in my life. Or it may be a demonstration of Satan gaining victory in my life. He wants desperately to take me back to where I was, right? So if I see my relationships are, are anchoring me back to where I was, it may just be a demonstration that Satan is gaining a foothold there. So that may be one reason why Peter is writing and trying to address this concern in the churches. There's another reason, a second condition, in which different spheres of social society were represented in the early church. These were diverse churches. So in the early churches, you had, again, you had Jews and Gentiles. You had uh, free people, and you had people who were under the bondage of servitude or slavery. You had uh, rich, and you had poor. You had those who were educated. You had those who were illiterate. And we know, as we read various New Testament epistles, as Paul and Peter are addressing those churches, that there were problems associated sometimes with that diversity when it wasn't bound together in unity. We know that there were people who saw themselves as being more privileged, who were oftentimes being uh, rebuked because they were slow to take the underprivileged to themselves as brothers and sisters and treat them in a loving way. And again, the same thing can happen today. 
For us, it might manifest itself with divisions among age groups or divisions among socioeconomic status or divisions among education or divisions among ethnic lines. Those things, those are natural, uh, sinfully natural bents in people is to want to align themselves with people who are either like them or who can elevate them rather than humbling ourselves to say, let's love and serve all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what Peter's getting at is, look, when, when those things are, are, are happening, when those things make themselves evident in the church, you've got to realize that a sincere love looks nothing like that. A sincere love wants nothing to do with either of those two kinds of hypocrisies. And I think it's good for us to sit on that and to challenge ourselves with that. If what I've described is any kind of an accurate description of any of us, we need to repent. We need to repent. Not just because it's wrong to fake it like that, but because we're actually missing out and denying the body of Christ something truly wonderful and beautiful. Sincere love amongst Christians is really a truly beautiful thing to behold, isn't it? Have you seen that? I, I think actually we're, we're fairly blessed here at Edgewater. You know, we, we, we have two things that are... That are uh, they're not unique to Edgewater, but they're kind of unique to context like the one that we're in. One is we have a diversity in the body. And two is we have a, a, a transientness to the body where there's always new people coming, right? So there's, there's always a, a lot of different people mixing here in the church. And there's nothing more beautiful than to see in that diversity unity truly borne out in love. I love when I see two people who have absolutely nothing in common outside of these walls, right? Like during the week, you know, one person is probably working at a high-powered job in the loop, and the other person is working a very blue-collar job in the burbs, and like, you know, they would never cross paths any other way in life except when they come and they're united together in Christ, and then to see them love each other and to become friends with one another, to support one another and to care for one another. That, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And I think that's what Peter's pointing them to. Sincere love amongst Christians is truly a beautiful thing to behold. So he's saying, love sincerely. That's the first qualifier. The second qualifier he uses with love, and this is with the agape love, he uses the word fervently, fervent. What does fervent mean? It's an athletic term, actually. That means to strive with all of my energy to give it my all, to put everything in. It's, it's to do it all out, to be all in with an intense strain. It's actually the same word used to describe Jesus's intense prayer when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed fervently, and we see there in his fervent prayer that he's, bleed, he's sweating blood, right? He's like, he's straining in prayer. Paul, or Peter is using that same word here in the way that we ought to love one another, in a straining way. In other words, he's saying, you've got to work at this. Like an athlete would strain and strive, you've got to work at love. Christian love is not a feeling. It's a matter of the will. That's so important. Because I don't always feel like loving you, right? And you don't always feel like loving me. But that's not fervent love, that's passive love. And it's not even love at that point. 
Peter's saying, no, it's a matter of the will. We strive, we work at loving one another. We show love to others when we treat them the same way that God treats us. We didn't deserve it, right? If we were God, we'd say, I don't feel like loving any of these people. But he fervently pursues to the point of fervently going to the cross and suffering on our behalf, right? There's an effort there. He forgives us. And so as we love fervently as God has loved us, we're called to forgive others. As God has been kind to us, we're called to be kind to one another. It's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of willing. And so it's something we've got to constantly be working at if we are to succeed. So what is he saying here in this opening verse? He's saying, look, you've been purified by God, right? You're recipients of his grace, his mercy. You've been born again. You've been purified by God. And you've been given that gift in great measure to love one another. Not hypocritically, but sincerely. Not based on how you feel, but by willingly submitting yourself to your newness of life and holiness in Christ. So, just to put a little application on that, a sincere love for the brethren, as Peter is calling us to, is a love that drives us to be in each other's lives. It drives us to be here, gathered together as the body of Christ. It drives us to pursue one another during the week, to, to say, these are not just my friends, these are not just the people I go to church with, these really are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are truly family. It drives me to want to be a part of the church body. It helps me to understand that, that committed, loving fellowship is not an extracurricular activity. It can't be chosen at will. So the first point there then is, again, love one another with this sincere love, not with hypocrisy. Then he goes to flesh out why we must live this way and then how we can live this way. So here's the second point. Why must we love this way? Look at verses 23 to 25 again. Again, he's just called us to love sincerely from a pure heart. And he says, since, in other words, because you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he illustrates this. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever, remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Why must we love this way? Simply because that's what you were spiritually reborn to do. This is God's purpose in saving us and sanctifying us, is that he would turn us into people who love like he does. What he's doing here is he's following up on what he said back in chapter 1, verse 3, where he reminds us that we've been born again in Christ. And we talked about what that meant. But the idea here is that our, our, our rebirth, this new birth in Christ, is an eternal, life-changing thing. It it makes us different. It makes us into new people. You've been changed by God. And because you've been changed by God and born anew, there's no going back. 
And here he's now saying that change brings with it a new love for God's family. And he quotes from scripture here. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 to, to substantiate his teaching here. Again, he says everything else is, is fading and temporal. But this word of God that was preached to you, this, this, this life-giving force that you've been giving, it remains forever. Our first birth was a birth of flesh. And the flesh is corruptible, right? We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Whatever is born of the flesh is sort of on this trajectory of decay. It is destined to fail. And that explains why mankind can't hold civilization together in unity, because we're all rooted in the flesh. Our efforts at at unity and and sort of keeping us together in, in, in some sort of love is based on human flesh, and therefore it's on a trajectory of decay. It's destined to fall apart, which is what Isaiah is saying here. Like beautiful flowers of spring, your, your works, they might look good for a while. They might bloom out. They might be successful for a time, but then they start to decay and die. And that trajectory all the way from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 Man's great attempts at unity are all ultimately destined to fail because they're rooted in the flesh. So he's saying, don't try to build unity in the church on the basis of your first birth. You can't do that. You got to build unity on the basis of your new birth. And when our unity is built on our new birth, it will succeed. Why? Because each believer has the same Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Romans 8 we call on the same Father, which he reminds us in verse 17. We share in his divine nature. We, we trust in the same word together. We've been given the same gospel. We've been born of the same spirit. And those things will never decay. Those things will never disappear. That's why. Thirdly, though, he talks about then how do we love that way? If the externals of the flesh that could divide us mean nothing compared to the eternals of the spirit that unite us, how do we tap into that, that new birth, that new life, that holiness? Well, that's where he begins to go in the beginning of chapter 2. And he really lists two things here. The first one is you got to put something aside. And secondly, you got to take something in. we got to put sin aside. And we got to take in God's word. And he wants us to be eager for the nourishment of the word, just like babies are eager for the nourishment of milk. Verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Again, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Putting aside sin, taking in God's word. This, this picture of this newborn baby that longs for uh, the pure milk is a really interesting picture. And if, if you've ever been around an infant or you've had a child of your own, you know this. A healthy infant is a hungry infant. Matt, can I get an amen on that? Babies want to eat all the time, right? When they're healthy, they are longing for that milk. They're craving after that milk. And, and I, I think about that when, 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 I, when I look at this, this analogy. I think, you know, I, I was thinking this week, 
many times I've thought about this analogy in terms of what the purity of the milk means in relation to the word. Long for the pure milk. And so I, I think about, okay, like, like the word is pure, the word is nourishing. That's what he's getting at here. And that's true. I think he's getting at that. I don't think I've ever really stopped to think about the longing part. And as I thought about that more this week, I was really struck by the fact that babies, yeah, babies are like, they're, they're, they're singularly focused on eating, right? They want that nourishment. They want that milk. And when they don't get it, they cry for it, right? When they don't get it, they're like, ah, like this is everything I need, everything I want. And so Peter is, is saying like, there's, there's something admirable about that. When we think about the desire for God's word, that we would just long for it like that. By the way, something else I read that I don't think Peter had in mind here, but I, I found interesting I was, I was looking at, like, babies and their desire for milk. Uh, little Google searches this week. One thing I found out that I guess I didn't really know before was that what babies take in, particularly, like, between four and eight months, what flavors they take in from their mother's breast milk sets the foundation for the things that they will crave throughout their lives. So if you're eating junk food, and you're nursing a child who's in that, that, that early first year of life, there's a good chance that you're setting your child up to crave junk food. And if you're eating healthy, nourishing things, you're setting them up to crave those very same things. And so I think about that in, in light of what Peter's saying. He's talking to, to fairly new believers. And he's saying, like, like, like a baby, long for the pure, nourishing word of God, but also I think there's probably some, some Holy Spirit sort of uh, driven application here that when we long for, the more we long for, the more we set our, our taste buds up to want more because we get a taste for the, God, the word of God. We, 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 we know how much we need it. And I think there's an encouragement here for him to say that to us. And again, what's the context? He's saying, how do we love one another? You want to you love one another? You want to have a sincere love for one another? Put away sin and crave the word. Let the word of God begin to form you and shape you. Sometimes children don't have appetites for good, healthy food because they've been eating the wrong thing. And Peter warns his readers here, look, lay aside the wrong things. Lay aside those attitudes. Lay, lay aside the junk food that would hinder your spiritual growth. Repentance is called for. He's saying, therefore, rid yourselves of these things. And then he gives us a list of the junk food that we got to get rid of. He says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What are those things? Malice is, is it's wicked ill will. It's ill will. So in the midst of conflict, it's that little voice inside me that just wants you to go away and something bad to happen to you, some consequence to come on you. How dare you be offensive to me, right? I have ill will towards you. That's malice. Deceit obviously is deliberate dishonesty. It also can mean guile. It's this idea of, of wanting to catch people with bait, right? In the midst of our conflict, I'm just going to throw, throw you a line, and I hope you grab onto it because there's a hook in there, and I, I can't wait to 
right? Deceit, craftiness, in other words, in my interactions with other people. Hypocrisy, we've talked about it, pretended piety and love. It means to judge under, as a person is giving off judgment from behind a screen or a mask. So I I smile on the outside, but on the inside, I despise you. I'm judging you. My true identity is covered up. Again, this is impersonation. It's, it's an act of deception. One who's assuming the mannerisms and speech and characteristics of someone else, else while hiding their true identity. So he's saying, put that away. You've got to be above board as Christians. You've got to be open. You've got you to be you, genuinely, sincerely, and fervently in love towards one another, not, not this hypocritical person. He mentions envy, resentful discontent is what envy is, right? How much of our conflicts are rooted in our resentful discontent? God, why, why do they have this and I got that? Why did, why, why did they get to win this argument and I got to lose it, right? And then he's mentioned slander, backbiting lies, evil speakings, literally, um, speaking down on a person, slander, He's saying, look, sin, when it manifests itself like this, it, it destroys your appetite for the word. It's junk food. It's filling your heart. It's filling your mind. And ultimately, it's sort of filling your whole being with, with this garbage. And it's, it's destroying your appetite. If you want to be nourished, if you want to grow, if you want to be able to love one another with an intense, pure love, the prerequisite to the act of yearning for the word of God that will shape you into a a godlike lover, the prerequisite to that is an act of repentance. Put away the sin. Put away the malice and the junk. Actively trust in Christ to, to rid you of those things. And then the word of God actually will be the instrument that he uses to help rid you of those things as you're nourished by what God has to say. Sin destroys the appetite for the word. When the Christian tries to find satisfaction in the things of this world, he has no appetite left for the things of God. Which explains why so many children of God, so many Christians have so little love for the word. We are filling ourselves with junk. And a lot of that junk is rooted in these little silly, petty arguments that we have when we get so self-focused that everybody else becomes our problem, our enemy, our obstacle. None of that should have any place in the lives of those who are born again. Peter says, no, rather, in obedience to the word of God, we are to make clean, decisive breaks from the past. I love how he, he ends that, right? He's, he's, he's just quoted from Isaiah 40, right? And he says, this is the word. This is the good news that was preached to you. Put away all of these things and, and, and long for the word that you may grow up into salvation. And he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you're, you, like that baby, have, have begun to, to get a flavor for the good things. So let me ask 
this as an application for us. How's your intake of God's word? A good way to evaluate that, besides the obvious, are you spending time in the word, is, is, is to ask yourself, am I being formed by it? Or is my life full of non-sincere love that should be a big red flag in my life that I'm not being nourished by the word? Like, is, if there's conflict in your life, if you're having difficulty with others, particularly in the church, if, if you're struggling to sincerely love one another, that ought to be a good red flag. Your, your, your nourishment is depleted. How's your intake of the word? I had a, um, just full vulnerability here, application-wise. I had an argument with somebody earlier in this week um, doesn't matter who it was, but it was a Christian. It was a brother or sister in Christ. And we got into a, a bit of an argument. It was, it was petty. It was nothing. It was just sort of a disagreement about something. But it ended up turning into something that was more along the lines of hurtful conflict. And, and the reason that it became so full of hurt is because the two of us were both feeling misheard and misunderstood. Right? Like, like, here's my perspective, and you're just not hearing it. My perspective seems perfectly logical to me. And they're over here, I think, feeling the same way. My perspective seems perfectly logical to me. You're just not hearing it. You're not understanding it. We just kind of ended up at this crossroads. We couldn't get past this misunderstanding of one another. And that's not unusual in conflicts, right? And I think that's ultimately why the conflict persisted. It sort of, it sort of carried on. And I think you can relate to that. How many times do our conflicts with other believers sort of get stuck? They just get stuck because we're both waiting for the other person to come around to our point of view. And again, our point of view might not be all wrong. And their point of view might not be all wrong. There may be truth, both points of view, but we're stuck because we're just sitting there waiting for you to come to my, my perspective. How often does that happen? So that's what happened in this situation. We kind of got stuck. We got at a standstill, and it, and it stunk, and it hurt, and it was just like just weighing on me. And so I got some space, and I went away from that conflict. And as I'm sitting thinking about the conflict... Honestly, I'm thinking about the other person's perspective and I'm going, no, like they don't get it. Why don't they get, why don't they see things the way I see things? Like why, wh I think what I'm seeing is right here. Why don't they see things the way I see things? And in my, my self-righteousness and sort of vindicating myself, I realized that I was actually displaying in my heart ill will towards that person and malice towards that person, and slander towards that person, because I'm thinking in my thoughts, they just don't understand because X, Y, and Z. And somehow in the midst of all of that, by God's grace, it was like he just sort of like whacked me on the head and shook me out of that and let me ask this, this question, because I, I was like, boy, I'm reading First Peter this week. Like, I've been, I've, been, I've been marinating in this passage this week, and all of a sudden, it was like he just, like, grabbed my head and shoved me to look at, back at it <laughs> and, 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 and reckon with the fact that I didn't have his perspective at all. 
I was, in fact, guilty of malice and slander and ill will. Even is in my own heart, I was thinking that I was right. And he reminded me, no, what you need to be, Bill, is conformed to my point of view. We need to be conformed to God's point of view, and that comes by being conformed to his word. And the more I was directed to be thinking about what the word actually revealed about my perspective, my original point of view, the more I began to realize that like, I was holding over my brother or sister in this situation something that God has never held over me. He was gracious to me. He was forgiving of me. He was kind to me when I was undeserving of it. And I was also reminded of the fact that I am not like God. I am a great sinner, which means that my perspective is limited, that I I can't see all this the way I think I've seen it all week. And by that, I was humbled enough by God's grace to go back to this person and just say to them, you know what? Um, I repent for holding over you what I was accusing you of holding over me this whole time. And by God's grace, they were able to say the same thing and we were able to reconcile and get past the situation. But it was a clear lesson object for me how easy it is for me not to let the word of God shape and form me and direct me to sincerely loving other people. How easy it is for for me to, to let my flesh drive my relationships and create conflict. So, are you dealing with conflict? Are you dealing with conflict in the church? Are you hoping to avoid conflicts? Maybe you don't have one right now, but you really, really don't want one. I hope that's true. Three things that he says to us here, just recapping. Remember the gospel and your status as born-again holy people. Remember who you are in Christ and why you are what you are. You've been, you are the recipients of God's mercy and grace. You've been made new. You are not what you were. Your associations are not what they were. He has drawn you to himself and a new family. He's shown you a love that is an agape love that is sincere and fervent so that you can have a phileo, agape kind of love with one another. Secondly, then, repent of sin. Repent of the sin that keeps you harboring ill will towards other people. Get off of the, this is my perspective, and I'm, I see it clearly. Why can't they just come around and see things the way I see things? Get off of that pedestal. Humble yourself. Get on your knees and recognize that God's perspective is needed here, not mine. And then drink deeply of the well of God's word and let his word shape you and conform you into his perspective so that, like him, you can be a fervent lover of others. That's the simple takeaway from these verses. So you have a great opportunity this week. We're going to, most of us, be together a little bit more. You're, some of us are going to be around tables with really annoying people this week. <laughs> what are we called to? We're called to remember the gospel, repent of sin, drink deeply from the well, and love others with a sincere love from a pure heart. 
Let's pray that God will help us to do that.